This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express Card. And we here on Savor are what you might call food explorers. It has been our actual job to go to cool places and eat, like, a lot of the food there. And then talk about it. And then talk about it into these microphones, which is a crazy dream job. Yes. Well, if you're like us and willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people like us who are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about mayonnaise. One of my least favorite foods. <laughs> I have five foods I don't like, and mayo is close. Dr. Pepper's number one, but mayo's up there. I'm incredibly neutral about mayo. I am as neutral about mayo as mayo <laughs> is a neutral object. <laughs> yeah. Dylan asked right before we started recording, like, what do you guys think of mayo? And I was like, it's fine. Oh, this is good. We can bring two different perspectives to the podcast. Although I am going to try to remain neutral <laughs> throughout. We'll see if I'm able to because it's intense. And I didn't realize that so many people have this emotion about it. I, I didn't either, actually. But the subject of mayonnaise does crop up a lot in the United States, particularly the American South. I mean, and people do have opinions about it, whether they like it or not, which brand they like. While we were in Asheville talking to food journalist Mackenzie Lunsford, a local chef by the name of John Fleer, kind of a chef celebrity sort of human in town, passed by and stopped to chat a little bit because he knows Mackenzie. And I do not remember how it came up, but Mayo entered the conversational fray. We talked about it in the studio with uh, super producer Dylan when we got back from that trip. He also quizzed me real hard on my mayonnaise preferences. Oh, he did. (laughs) I forgot about that. That was the second time that day Duke's mayo had come up, and I had not appreciated how serious a topic of debate it is. Oh, yeah. Your mayo preferences will make and break friendships in the South. Yeah, I'm glad that 
whatever you said was the correct thing. I had no idea. <laughs> I, I do now. And I'm so glad. <laughs> Wasn't he talking about getting a tattoo? Yeah. Yeah, of the, of, the of jar. The, of the Duke's mayo jar. Wow. For the record, y'all, um, if you're ever in the South and someone quizzes you about mayo, the, the correct answer is Duke's. Um, yeah. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I just say aioli. I'm like, is Miracle Whip mayonnaise? It's definitely not. <laughs> I don't know much about mayonnaise. It is certain. Um, see, this is why you don't like mayo, because you were exposed to Miracle Whip. And that ruined everything forever. <laughs> and that Miracle Whip does ruin everything forever. Okay. All right. Well, I guess it's it's too late for me. See, I'm from the North. I grew up on Hellman's. Anyway, this is a <laughs> yes inconsequential. <laughs> John Fleer's name actually comes up in an NPR article about Duke's mayonnaise that we're going to talk about later. That's how strong <laughs> his opinions are. They were like, who can we talk to about this? I know. <laughs> and speaking of Miracle Whip, does anyone else remember back when Stephen Colbert was on the Colbert Report and he got into that beef with Miracle Whip? He made fun of one of their ads on a segment and they fired back with an ad campaign directly calling him out during the commercial breaks for one of his shows. Like it ran during his show? Like yeah. they bought the ad space and then, oh, wow. Yeah, so it would say, we won't shut up, Steven. We're too cool for you, Steven. Like, what's going on here? Oh, heck. All right, well, points to Miracle Whip for that. We're Miracle Whip and we will not tone it down, Steven. If there is a food that I dislike, Miracle Whip is is high on that list. So it's not mayonnaise. It's definitely heckin' not mayonnaise. Well, I'm more gonna... more on that in a second. But this does bring us to our question: mayonnaise. What is it? Gross. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. <laughs> well, maybe gross. I, depending, I, you're allowed to think it's gross if you want to. Mayonnaise is a uh, thick sauce or dressing that appears uh, uh, yellowish-white and uh, creamy despite containing no dairy product. It's often used as an ingredient in uh, cold mixed salads, you know, chicken or tuna salad, egg salad, potato salad, perhaps an ingredient in casseroles or as a spread on sandwiches or alone or mixed with other sauces as a dip for like fries and other dippable things. Mm -hmm. It has a sort of creamy mouthfeel and a mild, slightly zippy flavor. I'm legit getting a little nauseous. I was afraid. I was trying to <laughs> phrase this like as pleasantly as possible I because it. I knew you would be upset about it. Um, scientifically, it is really cool because mm -hmm. uh, mayo is an emulsion of an acid and an oil that are bound together with the help of something bindy. And traditionally, vinegar and or lemon juice are the acid. Olive oil is the oil. And the bindy thing is uh, egg yolks. But you can use any number of things. There are tons of types of mayonnaise. Yeah, you can make it with basically anything that, like, physically works and flavor it in lots of usually very subtle ways. Uh, really, the key part here is the emulsion. And we've talked about emulsions a couple times before on the show. It's the term for an even mixture of two things that generally do not mix, like oil and water, or in this case, oil and vinegar or lemon juice, which are flavored water when you get right down to it. <laughs> I've never thought about it that way, but yes. Yeah, slightly acidic water. So if you put equal parts of oil and vinegar in a jar and shake them up, they'll beat up and appear to mix for like a minute, and then they'll start separating out. You've probably noticed this yourself. And the thing here is that the molecules of water that the vinegar is primarily made up of do not want 
to hang out with the molecules of fat in the oil. And, like, the feeling is mutual. Opposite sides of the dance floor, they're not getting along. But there are plenty of molecules in nature that can make the two play nice. Sort of like the connecty pieces in a set of tinker toys, yeah? These connective molecules are emulsifiers. They'll have one end that likes connecting up with water and another end that can grab onto fats. And the fats will still, after they've connected up to these connecty pieces, repel against other molecules of water. But since they're also attached to little bits of water, they wind up just dispersing themselves evenly throughout the water in the mixture. And these physics are also why milk contains both water and fats, but it looks like a single homogeneous liquid until, you know, you zoom way down into it. You notice that there's just little pockets of fat, but they're just separated out. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why, but that's a cute image in my head. What is going on, Maddie? You gotta, you gotta pick a side here. <laughs> See, I told you you would like it. It is cool. It is cool. <laughs> it's okay if you don't want to eat it. Mm-hmm. I suppose that's generally a thing that you can think something's cool and not want to eat it. <laughs> there are, in fact, many things that I think are cool that I do not want to consume. Yeah, it's yeah. probably a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> Uh, egg yolks are typically used in uh, in making mayonnaise because they contain this fatty molecule called lecithin that acts as an emulsifier. A little bit of ground mustard seed or prepared mustard is often added to homemade mayonnaise because mustard seeds contain a lot of um, mucilage, which is a kind of gluey protein that also acts as an emulsifier. And either of these substances can be derived from lots of other stuff, like uh, soybeans contain a lot of lecithin, seaweed, a lot of mucilage. And that's how you can get eggless mayo. Eggless mayo. Through the wonders of chemistry. (laughs) Well, let's talk some more about how it's made. Because it's interesting. Uh Um, In the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration Standard of Identity regulates mayonnaise. And yes, that is a thing. (laughs) the, The FDA regulates just about every food that can be labeled and sold in the U.S., to make sure that, that consumers know what they're getting um, and to keep manufacturers from cutting corners by using too many fillers in their foods. In the case of mayonnaise, its rules lay out uh, how much acid and oil the product should contain by weight, plus what kinds of acids and oils and egg products can be used, plus what uh, optional flavorings and texture modifiers are allowed. Okay, but really, what is Miracle Whip, though? It's not mayonnaise. It's not mayonnaise. It is a mayonnaise-related product, but it swaps out some of the oils that would be in mayo for sugars. And that FDA regulation says that it doesn't contain enough vegetable oil to count as mayonnaise. So if you look at a bottle, it'll be labeled salad dressing instead of what mayo. <laughs> yeah. I need to pay more attention. It's not like I'm ever buying Miracle Whip, but I did spend a lot of time confused in the mayo aisle <laughs> when we were going to make that peanut butter sandwich. Oh. Concoction. Yeah, yeah. Still mad about that anyway. Yeah, so it's it's got a little bit of sweetness to it that mayo doesn't have typically. And uh, it also contains, uh, the brand contains a little bit of paprika and garlic, I believe. Uh, powder, paprika and powder garlic. So, you know, those things can be added to mayo, but usually they would be like labeled like mayo garlic, with mayo. garlic. Yeah, or something like that. Okay. Sure. Uh, and speaking of, uh, aioli is a term for mayo that has added garlic. Oh, really? Yeah, usually fresh, but yeah. Fresh chopped garlic. You can make your own mayo at home, should you desire. Julia Child has a recipe available online. Oh, yeah. It's real easy. You just need a whip, a bowl, egg yolks, uh, vinegar or lemon juice, and the oil of your choice. Uh, You whip together the egg yolks and acid and then continue whipping and, like, slowly drizzle in the oil. 
slow. Slow. Slow and steady. Yes, yeah. Um, And the physical action of the whip allows the emulsifying molecules in the yolks to interact with and grab up molecules of water and oil and disperse themselves. Yeah. Mm. By the way, if you're trying to do this and and it breaks, like goes all lumpy and runny at the same time in precisely the way that mayo should not, um, <laughs> do not be afraid. Just put a little bit of the broken mayo in a separate bowl and then whisk in either a little bit more of your acid or a little bit more water or another egg yolk. And the mixture should repair itself. It should come back together. Um, then you just slowly whisk in the rest of the broken mayo and it will all be all be happy. You're like the recipe saver. <laughs> you could have saved me with my biscuits. If I'm ever being masochistic and making homemade mayo it goes wrong, <laughs> contact you straight away. You might like the homemade stuff better than the bottled stuff. I think it's worth experimenting with. Yeah. And this also goes for, for other emulsified sauces, like if you're ever making like a bechamel or something like that. Because the reason that emulsifications break, that is the waters and oils go back to hanging out on separate sides of the dance floor instead of mingling, um, that happens when the oils in the mixture overwhelm the connectee molecules. And so to restore balance, you have to either add more connecting molecules, like add more egg yolks, or add more water. So the little like bubbles of connected fats disperse and then whisked combined because otherwise otherwise those oils will like resolutely hang out by themselves. Too cool for school. They are, man. Mm-hmm, or things. they're like busy playing D&D or something. <laughs> I, I was thinking of those goth kids from South Park. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, if we look at nutrition, <laughs> if you exercise control, it's not as bad as you think. Maybe. I don't know. I've always had an association that mayonnaise was really bad for you. But that perhaps is just me. One tablespoon has about 90 calories. It is a lot of fat, but not saturated fat. And you can also get egg-free mayo. Egg-free is sometimes marketed as a health concern solution to, um, you know, wanting mayo but not wanting so much so much fat or so much cholesterol. But it's also marketed as an animal rights concern because the big makers of mayo buy up millions of eggs per year to do so. Uh, Unilever, the owners of uh, Hellman's and Best Foods, reportedly go through 350 million eggs every year in making mayonnaise. And, okay, now, thing about eggs, chickens will lay them whether or not those eggs have been fertilized. So most eggs that you buy, that thing never had a chance at becoming an embryo or a hatchling. But in order to breed new laying chickens, the industry sets up its chickens to lay fertilized eggs. And until very recently... There was no way to tell whether an egg carried a male or a female bird. You'd have to wait for it to hatch. And since the industry is really only doing this to create lady chickens, the male hatchlings would hatch and then be killed immediately. Yeah. It's pretty rough. But this method is changing, partially because of mayo. Huh. This one maker of vegan mayo launched a whole campaign against Unilever's products back in 2013 to bring attention to the issue under increased pressure, partially due to that, partially due to, you know, other animal rights organizations. In 2016, there was this research out of Germany and the Netherlands that identified a way to sample newly fertilized eggs' DNA without harming the embryos inside. So this will allow male fertilized eggs to be diverted from the laying farms. Like, they'll never grow or hatch But their death will be at such an extremely early developmental age that they won't, you know, they're not sentient yet. They they won't suffer. Plus, these eggs will be able to be used. Right now, 
that life is going to nothing. But by diverting those eggs, we can use them in industries like uh, the pet food industry and uh, to make vaccinations. So that is all great stuff. And then in 2016, the Humane League, which is this uh, nonprofit group that's interested in farm animal welfare, negotiated a deal with a trade group called United Egg Producers. Ooh. I just said it probably, you know, maybe exactly as dire as they deserve. I don't know. I don't know the guys. But um, <laughs> uh, they, they represent the vast majority of egg production in the United States. And they agreed to switch from the current method of just killing hatched male chicks to testing recently fertilized eggs. And they said that they would get this done by 2020. So we'll have to keep our eye on that. Yeah, absolutely. If we look at numbers... Americans like their mayo, apparently. (laughs) 177 million gallons were purchased in 2013, about 1.4 billion pounds, which comes out to around half a gallon per person. Just in America. This is just... Yeah. Holy heck. Mm Mm-hmm. That all adds up to 2 billion American bucks. More than people Americans spend on ketchup, which really surprised me. Of the 8 billion eggs produced each year in the States, about 1% or 8 million go directly to making mayo. Mm-hmm. And this is all interesting because doing this research, I learned about something called mayophobia. <laughs> <laughs> I am not the only one who hates mayonnaise. Nope. Jimmy Fallon <laughs> and President Obama also are famous non-fans of the stuff, and BuzzFeed <laughs> once ran an article calling it The devil's condiment. (laughs) The press has a term for extreme dislike of mayo, mayo mayophobia. Take this quote from Gabrielle Roth. Mayonnaise is ketchup's dark twin, loved by some, reviled by others, setting brother against brother wherever it is spread. (laughs) Or the old Milton Berle joke. Anytime somebody orders a corned beef sandwich on white bread with mayonnaise, somewhere in the world a Jew dies. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, that's... That's not a thing. Ryan Mustard. Ryan Mustard. (laughs) Obviously. Clearly. Or if you go way back to 1905, British writer Frank Schlosser wrote, Much modern depravity I attribute to the unholy cult of mayonnaise. And he went on to compare it to, quote, an old actor painted up to look young. (laughs) The unholy cult of mayonnaise. I kind of want to make a joke cult now. Oh, man. Yeah, the holy cult of mayonnaise. Maybe I'll write that into the D&D game I'm currently playing. (laughs) That's beautiful. Mayo did come to represent a certain type of oft-ridiculed American. In the words of Mel Brooks, this person, quote, drives a white Ford station wagon, eats white bread, vanilla milkshakes, and mayonnaise. This was also reflected in 1985's mockumentary, The History of White People in America, where the pale white subjects all had a personal bottle of mayonnaise they carried around with them. Oh, wow. Katz's Deli in New York City, where that famous orgasm scene (laughs) took place in Where Harry Met Sally, it has a sign that warns, quote, ask for mayo at your own peril. (laughs) And I think there's an association with fat and the stigma around fat that plays into this, too, because I was just trying to get to the bottom of where some of this is coming from. In the late 80s, Hawaiian writer Charles Miminger launched the worldwide I Hate Mayonnaise Club <laughs> to hold back the, quote, evil empire of slime and the horrible alleged food. <laughs> a dozen or so students followed suit in 1991 when they formed the Wesleyan Anti-Mayonnaise League and protested the tubs of mayo in the college's cafeteria. 
And to me, it sounds like maybe it was more about leaving the mayo out all day. That's what they were protesting. Hmm. But then again, the founder included this phrase in her wedding vows about never to bring tuna or mayonnaise into our home. (laughs) And she would go on to describe it as, quote, black magic and satanic type (laughs) stuff. (laughs) I feel like I've met some Satanists that would argue. (laughs) You think so? Yeah. Maybe we'll bring them on for a (laughs) follow-up. In the 2002 movie Undercover Brother, the main character had to learn to stomach mayo so as to blend in as a, quote, tight-butt white man. And I've mentioned before, I think on this show, I had to undergo this, I guess we'd call it training, um, before I traveled abroad through an internship at my school where you had to eat something that would gross you out and then act like it didn't gross you out. And it was supposed to be like, don't uh offend people. And it was cold pasta with mayonnaise just on top. Oh, wow. And it was rough, I got to say. I believe you. It was rough. As of 2006, there's a website called holdthatmayo.com <laughs> that comes with this statement. When you order a BLT, there's no M in it. It should not be the default. <laughs> That's our political position. Political. <laughs> there's a Google graph showing the late 20th century rise of the phrase hold the mayo. It's pretty significant. And scientists have looked into the distaste of mayo. There has been science around it. And they think it has to do with the disgust response, which they think has to do with rotten flesh, animal waste, and our body doing its best to protect us from microbes. Most commonly, the things that elicit this disgust reaction are mushy, squishy, goopy, gooey, filmy, slimy, or some combination. And yeah, looking at you, Mayo. (laughs) If you take this quote from Slate, mayonnaise contains an animal product. It is reminiscent of pus or semen, and it is remarkably slimy and jiggly. Whew. Apparently, as much as 20% of people, or as many as 20% of people, dislike mayonnaise. Wow. Um, there's a film that Hold the Mayo group put together called uh, The Mayo Conspiracy um, <laughs> that theorizes that mayonnaise's uh, prevalence is a global conspiracy. Supposedly, it's satire, but I'm not, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Fascinatingly to me, studies show that young children don't really experience this gross-out response. For mayonnaise in particular or for stuff in general? Stuff in general, it, it was interesting to me because I I know I've seen babies grossed out by broccoli and stuff like that. But I think they, yeah, it was some of these other things like mayonnaise. I think it's like a surprise flavor kind of thing. They're like, that yeah. tastes like a thing and what is happening to my face? yeah. So the scientists were suggesting that it's a learned thing. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. That's great. I know. I would love to look more into that. (laughs) On a personal level, I don't get, like, a lot of things that disgust people when it comes to food don't disgust me. Mm -hmm. I'm a very hard-to-disgust person in general, I would say. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but something— not working for me. <laughs> yeah. And I did want to put in here also that, for the record, it's not the mayo in cold salads that makes them a hazard at, like, picnics and potlucks and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like that's a pretty common, like, if you see, like, chicken salad out at, like, a church potluck, you're like, oh, maybe not maybe not that one. Maybe steer towards something uh, else. There's sort of a, I don't know, 
perception that that's a thing. But it's really not. Like mayonnaise contains a lot of acid, actually, which prevents bacterial growth. Um, And commercially bottled mayo is especially safe because the egg yolks in it have been pasteurized. The CDC has never reported an instance of foodborne illness associated with commercial mayonnaise. Ah. Which is, like, remarkable. Yeah. They have said, this is remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, man, I should put that on their jar. (laughs) CDC says, this is remarkable. (laughs) However, the other things in these cold salads, yeah, chicken and potato and eggs, are bacterial playgrounds at room temperature. Above about 40 degrees Fahrenheit, um, that's about 4.4 Celsius, uh, bacteria can double in number in just 20 minutes. The USDA recommends throwing out any food that has been sitting at room temperature for over two hours. Um, Or if it's over 90 degrees or uh, 32 degrees Celsius, they recommend reducing that time to just over one hour. Oh, no. So, I mean, for, (laughs) for like, best practices, I I don't follow this rule either. But if I were, like— Just, just keep keep your hot foods hot and your cold foods cold, folks. Mm-hmm. Especially if you have some kind of immune issue where this could be a problem. Yes. Yeah. That is wise. Mm-hmm. And remember, if you're at a potluck or something, to think about other. Because I'm always like, I don't care about taking this risk. But other <laughs> people do. Yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Be considerate. And this whole distaste of mayo thing might be changing. There are some signs that it's changing, particularly in Southern cuisine. It has kind of made a, I don't know if it's a comeback, but almost more of a, let's let's look at mayo again with a less critical eye, everyone. Remember how good <laughs> we like? We love it. And there is an artisanal mayo shop in Brooklyn, of course. Of course. Or there was. I'm not sure if it's still open because the website wasn't working when I tried oh, to get to it. Oh, no. But there was at one time and may still be. <laughs> and throughout history, Mayo has been pretty well loved, and we'll get into some of that history. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, Another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. Well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. 
It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So this one has a couple of competing origin stories. Surprise, surprise. Mm, Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, no surprise at all. (laughs) Both France and Spain are vying to take credit for the invention of mayonnaise. This is currently still (laughs) up for debate. Okay. uh, Hotly debated among the countries. Honorable mention to Egyptians and Romans, though, because they were eating a mixture of eggs and olive oil similar to mayo all the way back in ancient times. Let's first take a look at the case of France. (laughs) France. It begins in 1756 when the Duke of Richelieu's forces attacked Port Mahon in the first battle of the European Seven Years' War. Port Mahon. This is my band teacher's name. I I apologize, Mr. Mahan. But I... (laughs) (laughs) It's very much impacting my inflection. Um... So it was on the Mediterranean island of Menorca, which these days is part of Spain. The Duke's forces were victorious, and his chef wanted to celebrate the occasion with a feast, one boasting the most luxurious, creamy, and decadent sauce. But problem! Problem! There was no cream on the island. (gasps) Never fear. Solution! A mixture of egg and oil that he called mejonaise, after the port where it was conceived. Or another way this could have gone down is that the chef learned about the condiment from the island natives. Okay. As far as the word itself goes, the first example of it in print in France came along in 1806. But interestingly, the word appeared two years earlier in a French phrase in a German book. Huh. Yeah. Okay. The English adopted the word in the 1840s, first recorded by William Makepeace Thackeray. The Mayonnaise Duke of Richelieu creation story was the generally accepted truth until about 1906 when a culinary investigator posited that the lateness of the word in France combined with the spelling mayonnaise with a Y in the earliest printed examples as opposed to mayonnaise with an H makes the story a little fishy. Ah. He suspected that instead mayonnaise started out as bayonnaise two years after the original Duke of Richelieu's story. There are a lot of similarities between the two stories. Bayonnaise was named after the French town of Bayonne. Still others think (laughs) that mayonnaise's name comes from meunier, which means to handle, or the old French word for egg yolk, moyo. By the 1920s, 
The Spanish were fighting to reclaim their mayonnaise heritage. One chef out of Madrid led the charge, pushing out a pamphlet demanding that his fellow Spaniards do away with the word mayonnaise and start calling it instead salsa mayonnaise. Whether or not they invented mayonnaise, the French were the ones that spread it around. Spread it around. Oh, goodness. Yeah. It was one of the five mother's (laughs) sauces refined in France in the 18th century and is pretty closely related to aioli. French chef Marie-Antoine Carême's lightened recipe, now with vegetable oil and egg yolks, was the most widespread. Uh, I can't stop. We see examples of this in 19th century cookbooks dedicated to French cuisine that came with recipes involving mayo out of Britain and Germany. And this about brings us to the United States. But first, it brings us to one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. This episode is brought to you by Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express Card. And we are what you might call food explorers. We are so lucky that a part of our job involves traveling and trying a lot of the food where we go to travel and then coming back here and telling all of you good listeners about it. And through that, we have discovered some amazing dishes. Sure, yes. Like, I had never understood what poke really could be, and it is delightful. It is stunningly good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which we had a lot of on our trip to Hawaii. Uh, Another thing from their passion fruit I now look for in literally every menu that I read. I'm like, yep, that one has passion fruit. Going for it. And then all of the moles, and especially the green mole that you heard us talk about recently that we had from in Las Vegas. In Vegas, yeah. Oh, or just steak basements. Who doesn't love a steak basement? Exactly. <laughs> well, um, if you are like us and you're willing to travel to seek out new foods to try, you go with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. It's for people who, like us, are in search of the next food adventure. If you travel, you know. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with French chefs 
migrating to the U.S. in the 1800s, and they brought with them mayonnaise. And by 1838, the fancy Manhattan restaurant Delmonico's offered both chicken mayonnaise and mayonnaise of lobster. I believe these were these were cold salads. I believe you are correct. Yes. And salads were the vehicle that really introduced mayo to the American public. Tomato salads, potato salads, Waldorf salads. The reason why the salad-mayo combination was so popular was because mayo was and is great at hiding less than desirable flavors and you're perhaps not so fresh vegetables or fruits. And it's also a good binder which is why it took off on sandwiches. After the mechanical bread slicer came out in the 1920s, the sandwich became a really popular lunch for working-class Americans, and mayo benefited from that popularity. It it rode the sandwich's star. Yeah, you know, it it gives a nice layer of moisture in there. Yeah, but it usually doesn't... But it doesn't, yeah, really bog it down or make it soggy. Yeah. So It was always a bummer with sandwiches. I love tomatoes, but... You put a tomato on a sandwich, you don't eat it right away. Oh, it'll soak right through that bread. Yeah, if, yep. you, if you get that good layer of, just light layer of oil from mayo or from regular oil <laughs> uh-huh. or butter, whatever you want, then yeah, then it kind of insulates the bread. Huh, all right. Mm. Noted. <laughs> President Calvin Coolidge entered the mayonnaise fray. Or the frayonnaise. Oh my goodness. Can I coin it? Sure. Yes. Yes. I'll never make any money off of it. I'll probably lose not only money, but dignity. I, th- respect. I think we need a t-shirt that has that has <laughs> Dukes versus Hellman's, and it's the Freonese. Ooh, I know. Uh, we have the power. We do. We have the power. In 1923, President Coolidge told the press he couldn't go without his aunt's homemade mayo. And homemade, up until this point, was pretty much how you got your mayo. But it would virtually become a thing of the past when companies realized that they could be making some serious money off of this. Oh, yeah. And the front runner was a little company called Hellman's, maybe you've heard of it, out of New York City. So we have two company asides here. Yeah. And we'll start with Hellman's. Richard Hellman immigrated from Germany to New York in 1903. He opened a delicatessen in 1905 where he flavored his salads with his wife's homemade mayonnaise. Customers loved it and asked if they could get it straight up to go. Since takeout containers were lagging at the time, at first, the mayonnaise came in these wooden tubs used for measuring butter. Ah, huh. But once jar technology was available, Hellman started selling it, the mayonnaise, in jars with wide openings ripe for the scooping. (laughs) And he differentiated between the two types of mayonnaise he sold with a blue ribbon. One had the blue ribbon and one did not. The blue ribbon recipe was so popular that by 1912, Hellman designed a label with the blue ribbon on top. And he was doing good enough business that he shut down his deli to solely focus on mayo in 1917. He became a U.S. citizen in 1920 and opened the, quote, largest mayonnaise factory in the world in Long Island City, New York, in 1922. To this day, Hellman's and early competitor Best Foods make up 45% of the mayo market, with Hellman's dominating the East Coast and Best Foods dominating west of the Rockies. I gotta say, I've never heard of Best Foods until doing this. Yeah, it's a popular brand. Both are owned by Kraft, which is owned by Unilever. Right. Yeah. And this brings us to Duke's Mayonnaise, 
which is what we mentioned at the top as John Fleer's favorite. Mm-hmm. And we owe Duke's mayonnaise to South Carolinian Eugenia Thomas Slade Duke. And her story is really cool, too, because she succeeded at a time when women weren't really welcomed at all in the business realm. Duke wanted to find a way to help out the U.S. during World War I. So around 1917, she enlisted her daughter to help her make sandwiches out of their small kitchen in their small rental house. And they sold these sandwiches to infantrymen at Camp Sevier for 10 cents apiece. And this was a place kind of the last stop for a lot of soldiers before they went to Europe. Yeah. Pimento sandwiches, chicken salad sandwiches, egg salad sandwiches, a.k.a. sandwiches that utilize mayo. With a large chunk of the male population away fighting the war, her workforce, as popularity of her sandwiches grew and she hired more people, was mostly women. One story claims she sold over 10,000 sandwiches on one fine day in 1919. Wow. Oh, man, that's a lot. By 1923, Duke was struggling to meet demand for her sandwiches. At the suggestion of one of her top salespeople, she decided to focus on selling the key ingredient in these sandwiches, mayonnaise, transitioning from entrepreneur to manufacturer. Duke's Mayonnaise Company, complete with one of Greenville, South Carolina's first manufacturing facilities, started production within that year. And she was well-known about town for her big hats, her pearls, her love of parties, but also as a voice for women's rights. She took part in pushing for the passage of the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote. And she was smart, too, making deals with hotels so they'd use her mayo for those uh, tea time finger sandwiches. Ooh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Thinking. Demand kept growing, and Duke sold her company in 1929. And remember, we mentioned at the top of the episode, John Fleer was quoted in that NPR article about Duke's mayonnaise. Well, the article posits that in most critically acclaimed restaurants across the United States, one of the only manufactured food items you'll find in their cupboards is Duke's mayonnaise. Yeah. Unlike most mass-produced mayos, it doesn't have any sugar because it was rationed during the war, so she cut it out, which gives it extra tang. Fleer says, quote, I don't associate with chefs that don't use it. Or else I enlighten them. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not Duke's only mega fan, too. You can find stories of wedding centerpieces and urns for the ashes of loved ones. Duke's has, like, a fan hall of fame to get (laughs) fan letters. And I remember reading, I think Chef John Fleer said in this article, that when you learn to make mayonnaise at culinary school, you're essentially making Duke's mayonnaise. Yeah. I can't remember if I've ever had Dukes, but I got to say, I feel like I've got to... Got to try it. I've got to revisit it. Yeah. Or try it, whichever it is. Revisit might be a strong word. You don't need to, like, hang out there. (laughs) You can just take a bite. I know that in my household, Dukes, when we have Dukes, it's for a fancy occasion. That is the fancy mayonnaise. Oh, totally. I'm glad that's not just me. (laughs) It's like, oh, we have Dukes. Are we having people? Oh, are are there guests? (laughs) Should I have dressed up? Exactly. Where's my hat? An industry magazine from 1937 came with this mayo observation. Quote, mayonnaise, which had heretofore been considered a luxury, has now become a staple and a table necessity, not only in the homes of the rich, but also at the working man's table. (gasps) Mayonnaise had made it. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) But let's step back a bit to 1933 in the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago when the National Dairy Products introduced a type of mayo that they labeled salad dressing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we know this stuff as Kraft Miracle Whip salad dressing. And when I was looking into that, I thought that that had changed. But as you said at the top, it's still labeled that way, huh? Yeah. And due to its status as a salad dressing, it is, I believe, the best-selling salad dressing in the United States. There's a lot of uh, air quotes There happening. are so many scare quotes. <laughs> because first of all, I wouldn't just plunk it. I mean, when I hear the word salad dressing, I think of like a vinaigrette. Right. I think of something that I would dress a salad with mm-hmm. and not make into chicken salad. Like, I feel like, the I don't know, the term salad is very confusing for me sometimes. I agree. Anyway, whatever salad is, I would not put Miracle Whip in it. So not personally. Potato salad, chicken salad, those are mayonnaise and Mayonnaise only. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I just, I really dislike the flavor of Miracle Whip. That's interesting. Yeah. Like, I can't, I can't recall enough Anyway, um, so okay, so so supposedly how this was created was that Kraft was seeing a drop in mayo sales due to the Great Depression. Like it, it had been going up, and they were happy, and then Great Depression comes along, and people start making their mayo at home again. And it's not totally clear whether Miracle Whip was cheaper to produce than mayonnaise, or or even whether it was being sold for less money than mayonnaise at the time. But Kraft was successfully able to market it as a novel and worthwhile product. Crafty craft. Uh-huh. Um, and the name comes from this new machine design that they purchased while they were developing Miracle Whip. Uh, the, the machine did the job of, of emulsifying the ingredients, uh, allowing a mixture with less oil and less egg to come together nonetheless smooth and thick. And the machine had been dubbed by its inventor the Miracle Whip. Oh. And the name transferred to that first product the craft made with it. Huh. I'm laboring under a lot of false... <laughs> I always thought that it was called Miracle Whip because it was somehow, like, mayonnaise but much healthier for you. Well, it is lower in fat because some of the texture um, in it is replaced with sugars. Like, mm. high-fructose corn syrup is one of the top—I think it's, like, the fifth ingredient on the label uh-huh. um, by mass. So you will save on certainly fat calories and probably calories overall, given that fats are a lot more calorie-dense than sugars are. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's healthier for you. Right. Um, I mean, healthier is really qualitative to begin with, but um, yeah. but but when you when you get into the fats versus sugars argument, and also um, the fact that it has to use uh, stabilizers in order to make everything come together mm-hmm. properly, then you know, boop. Yeah, and, and speaking of this mayo party, couldn't go on forever <laughs> because by the 1960s, scientists were telling the American public to avoid foods with high cholesterol counts like eggs, because they were bad for your heart. And that wasn't the end of Mayo's health woes. Reports started coming out linking raw egg consumption to salmonella poisoning, and this impacted the Mayo. I mean, any Mayo that you buy jarred is pasteurized, Mm -hmm. period. Unless perhaps it's like local artisanal Mayo. Uh But, you know, (laughs) but anything on a grocery store shelf has been pasteurized. Um, So... And the salmonella scare in general was a thing that was pertinent in the 1960s, but has been pretty much taken care of today. You've got a really low risk of getting salmonella from eggs. And like we talked about in our uh, our sugar episode, the sugar industry was very effective 
at making fat the villain in your diet. And I, I'm sure mayonnaise got side up from that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably how Miracle Whip became known as the healthier alternative. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I will say, I guess I didn't really know what mayonnaise was so much. Uh-huh. And when I learned it, it had a lot of eggs in it. It got me to thinking about how on occasions where I have had homemade mayonnaise, it's usually more yellowish. Totally, yeah. And then how strange that kind of is that it's so white. Oh, yeah. So white but in it, the store. Right. I think the color of the homemade stuff comes from, you know, you're using these these fresh egg yolks that are unperturbed uh, and probably fairly yellow in color. But the egg products that are used in commercial mayonnaise might have more white mixed in or um, might do to whatever kind of processing they go through have less of that color. Hmm. Or maybe the chickens that they're using don't produce as yellow of a yolk. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody I know used to have chickens, and when she would give me eggs, I was always shocked at, like, the difference in color. Yeah, I'm sure it's a type of feed kind of issue. Hmm. Um, And uh, as far as I know, the only two things that the FDA says that you cannot season mayonnaise with, commercially speaking, are turmeric and saffron because those two things would color the mayonnaise to look like it contained more eggs. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that about brings us (laughs) to the end of mayonnaise, an episode where I do not feel that I need to go out and... (laughs) Oh, is this your first ever, like, not hungry episode? I feel like there's been one other one. I can't remember what it is. But I am willing to try it. I've had Hellman's recently, and it was a no-go. How did you eat it? Did you just, like, take a spoonful? No, I had it on a—I did try, like, a little straight, but I had it on a sandwich. Mm, No? Okay. Mm -hmm. You're from the South. I mean, how (laughs) do you feel about, like, pimento cheese spread? Yeah, and thinking about this, I I was reading the the salads that it's usually in, and I realized I, I haven't really had chicken salad or tuna salad. I don't like potato salad that much. It's fine, but I prefer it when it is mustard-based. Oh, not not uh, mayo-based. But I do, I like pimento cheese in small amounts, but I've never noticed like a mayonnaise flavor. I know it is mostly mayonnaise, isn't it? It's cheese and mayo. It's cheese, mayo. And and pimentos. Pimento. (laughs) But uh, yeah, everyone in my family loves mayonnaise. Everyone loves pimento cheese, and I'm I'm usually the one that's like, I'm going to... I'm fine. fine. I'll be over here. It's okay. Yeah. Sometimes I really like dipping my fries in it, Mm -hmm. which is a relatively European thing. If anything could save mayonnaise, it's fries, (laughs) I think. (laughs) I'm sure I've had fries that have mayonnaise on them, and they were were okay. You're having a very strong emotional reaction to this. I'm sorry that we're putting you through like a little bit of a ringer on this one. No, it's good. It's good to explore all (laughs) facets. Of human taste and disgust. It's October. You're facing your fears. That's true. There you I go. I could incorporate it into. I'm I'm, already, I'm trying to think of those Halloween recipes. You know, at a party where you reach in the noodles and it's like intestines. Yeah, yeah. Because mm, I have that whole jar haunting my refrigerator from our our sandwich fiasco. <laughs> And so I'm trying to think of ways to use it so I don't have to look at it anymore or think about it being in there. Would you want it? I could just give it to you. you. you just, I've told you so many times that you can just bring it in and I will take it from I, you. I should give it to you then. Yeah. 
We can solve this problem relatively easily. Sometimes I wake up and I look at the fridge and it's like there's a ghost in there like, I know you're in there, Hellman's. I know you're in there. It's pale, ghostly visage. <laughs> yes. The nightmare of just a big jar of mayonnaise at the foot of my bed. Anyway, to anyone who likes mayonnaise, apologies. I've tried to... It's not personal. We, no, it's we not. We promise it's not personal. It's not. I, I believe that it could do amazing things. This brings us to <laughs> listener, listener mail. <laughs> <laughs> but our first one is a great one yeah. because it's a thank you. It's not really a mail. To frequent writer Bob for having pizza delivered to our office. Oh, man. That was such a good afternoon. Thank you so much, Bob. It was a Friday he asked what all of our favorites were, and he sent, like, three pizzas. It fed the entire office, and he lives in China, so it was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, there were salads, too. Oh, it was such a good day, and everyone was just like, why are we Why are we so lucky to have pizza? And we were like, thank Bob from China. And they were like, thank you, Bob. <laughs> and I have a real anxiety about leftovers, but that pizza was gone. Oh, yeah, don't worry. I did yeah. not have to worry about it. Not at all. Mm-mm. <laughs> Eleanor wrote about our Willy Wonka episode. I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and its sequel when I was eight. When I was younger, Roald Dahl was my favorite author. Roald Dahl wrote another book called The Missing Golden Ticket and Other Splendiferous Secrets, where he writes about the making of the book and how there was originally another child who gets a golden ticket. There are also tidbits of information about his childhood and secret recipes such as strawberry fudge scrumdiddlyumptious. Or something like that, bars. <laughs> if you would like more information on this, you should definitely check out the book. It has enough information to make a sequel of the podcast. The BFG also has some interesting foods, such as snaz cumbers and fobscottle. <laughs> well, they're fun to say. If they're as fun to research as they are to say, then I am in. Oh, man. Yeah, BF oh, BFG is good. Another frequent writer, Jessica, wrote in response to our once-in-a-lifetime meal episode— in Cambodia, we were gifted with the opportunity to visit a school that the company helped support. A part of the support, we all had supper created by the students there of local Cambodian cuisine. This included a chance to eat fried crickets, tasty but the legs get stuck in your teeth, and local herbs and vegetables that we can't get here in Canada, like a plant called morning glory. And, of course, locally grown and prepared tea. Everything was either grown at the school or found at the local market. On our way home, we had a 12-hour stop in the Seoul airport. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's an incredibly cool airport. One of the things it offers is cultural tours of the city that don't require a visa or even checking out of the airport. We took a four-hour tour that included a visit to a Buddhist temple and to the former royal residence. We also got to stop for a bit of shopping and lunch. I got to buy boba and mochi in Korea. And then we had lunch at a tiny local restaurant. This is where I had my first taste of bibimbap and fell in love. Eating in Asia is a very different experience in general, and I can't recommend more to everyone that they try it at least once. I certainly want to go back. Oh, yeah. Boba and bibimbap and mochi and oh. Mm -hmm. Even fried crickets. I like a fried cricket. Yeah. I'm glad that Jessica sent this because it added a whole other layer for me in thinking about the once-in-a-lifetime meal of, yes, those international meals. And I immediately thought of so many examples from my time in Asia and so much good food that I... I'm, you, like, can't even identify. I know. Like, let alone have immediate access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like that peanut ice. That peanut ice sand. But a listener wrote in. Yes. And, and the tofu. 
which some people have written in about that too. And I think I've discovered what it is. I just haven't found the right way to prepare it. Okay. All right. Well, you're working on it. I'm working on it. If anyone has any hot tips, (laughs) you know where to send them. And if you don't, here you go. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at saverpod. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you so much to these fine humans for writing in. Thank you to Dylan Fagan, our super producer. (laughs) Who is wearing a very creepy mask, and that's just fine. (laughs) That's just fine. It's from Mr. Robot. It's from Mr. Robot, but it also sort of looks like the colonel. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, An evil one. His, yeah. like, evil twin, you know. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. What's oh. Spock called? Is it just evil Spock? It's just Spock's twin. Oh, goodness. This is a bad... I, I'm bad at this quiz. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> well, that's what's going on right that now. That is what's going on. Um, thank you to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.